Well, good morning. Um, this morning's Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, um, beginning at verse 17, um, through to the end of the chapter. So, beginning at verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may, be benefit, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It was uh, really encouraging to hear from Michael, and in my experience, most people have exactly the same reaction when I speak. They just <laughs> disagree with me, but that's okay, you know. <laughs> I feel really comfortable now standing up here. <laughs> uh, can I just say, Sue sends her regards, my wife Sue. Uh, she's not here today, wasn't here last week. We are not having marriage problems, it's okay. Uh, uh, last week, uh, she. When it, some of you will remember Michael Dalby. Michael is uh, autistic. He's a guy who's been coming to our, our home for every month or five or six weeks over the last 30 years or so. And uh, it was his 50th birthday, and he was really keen. Yeah, you know, we just sang the birthday song. He was really keen to be in town singing the birthday song, and Sue was coordinating the small choir who sang that to him. And today she was planning to be here, but our grandson Ollie, who was just short of four, did something to his ankle yesterday, and uh, uh, so they thought they'd sit on it overnight, but have gone off to get that tested for breaks, sprains, whatever. So Sue, given our daughter, has just had another child a couple of weeks ago, is just doing the grandmotherly thing. So uh, just to say she still loves you, uh, just not here today. All right? uh, we're going to continue on Ephesians 4. Michael, who uh, will see how much payback he wants to give me at this point because he's doing the slides uh, and uh, there'll be uh, just a... Uh, yeah, there'll be... Yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> So you'll have some idea where I'm heading through this second uh, part of Ephesians chapter 4. There'll be some headings, some verses, 
Uh, if you're a note taker, it'll be useful. If you're not, there'll be visuals if you get bored with my voice. All right? So uh, let me just uh, pray and then we'll get into this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a, uh, a wonderfully gracious God. We've seen that as we've been exploring Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 of your great kindness. And we know that grace produces uh, impact in our lives. We pray that as we consider the impact of it, uh, looking through this second half of the book, uh, that you'll stir our hearts, uh, that you'll encourage and strengthen us for uh, putting on the new life, the new life that you've brought us into. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me if uh, there is one thing the Australians hate, it is hypocrisy. Right? We, we hate hypocrites, people who say one thing and do another, pretend to be one thing and they aren't that. We hate it in politicians, we hate it in sports stars. You know, Lance Armstrong, seven times Tour de France winner, uh, staunch advocate against drugs in sport, discovered to be taking drugs, performance enhancing drugs all the way along. You know, we hate that sort of response or reaction. And it's the same with Christian leaders, I think, too. Don't the press just love jumping over any Christian leader who is espousing morality and then is discovered to be you know, having an affair or fleecing uh, money off those people who are in his church? And I think rightly so. You know, it's right for that sort of uh, thing to be exposed, that sort of hypocrisy to be uh, just made clear for what it is. There used to be an old bumper sticker, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And uh, I think there's some truth in that, that is, uh, we aren't perfect, we are forgiven, we know the grace of God. But you would expect that the gospel, if it is true, would produce profound impact and change in someone's life, wouldn't you? I mean, that it should make a huge difference to our perspective and the way in which we live. Last week we looked at the first half of Ephesians chapter 4 and we looked at the whole idea of what it meant to be a truth in love community, uh, how that the gospel works itself out in our life together at an essential level. And then for this week and for the rest of the series as we look through Ephesians chapters 4, 5 and 6, we're exploring the practical impact of the gospel in our lives. And it's not divorced from the gospel, but it's a natural flow on or consequence about it. So the first thing we're going to look at is the fact that Christians who talk the talk, they should walk the walk. Uh, talk the talk, you walk the walk. The second half of this letter it is actually full of walking words, uh, uh, but some of our translations probably obscure them just a tad. So I thought I'd show you where the key walking words are because they operate like uh, hooks that you latch onto as you go through this second half of the letter. So in chapter 4 verse 1, so I'm using the New International Version. I, I think probably most of us uh, use this version. 4 chapter 1 says, live, but the, literally the word is walk. Um, and the idea is continue to walk, right? Live, walk, worthy of the calling you've received. When you go to chapter 4, verse 17, uh, the bit that started our reading today, you must no longer live, and again, it's a walking word, right? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or non-Christians do. When you get to chapter 5, verse 2, there's an exhortation to walk. That 
exactly the same word, but they've translated it not live, but walk, in the name of love. You get to chapter 5, verse 8, and it says, live, again walk, as children of light. Uh, chapter 5, verse 15, be careful then how you live, it's the walking word. Right? So what we've got is a series of instructions about how to keep going in this direction. You become a Christian, how do you keep making progress in that way? And it's a, each of those statements, those hooks, show how a truth in love community, we've seen that back in the first half of chapter 4, how they are to operate in practice. However, let me say... We do need to remember that Christian behaviour, Christian walking, Christian lifestyle does not make you a Christian, right? Any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? It just doesn't work that way, right? Behaviour doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, I have a, I think it is a silver birch tree in my backyard. It could be a silver birch tree. I'm not great with vegetation, really, <laughs> so... It might be. Let's say I got sick of this silver birch tree and I decided what I really wanted was an orange tree, right? So I go out and I'll buy several bags of oranges, bring them home, and I staple the oranges, right, to my silver birch tree. Voila! Orange tree, right? No, like, stupid. It's exactly the sort of thing I'm likely to do, to be quite honest, right? It's, but, but the fruit doesn't produce the tree. The tree produces the fruit, it's exactly the same idea of being a Christian. God transforms your heart and your life by his gospel, but that will result in fruit being produced that's consistent with the sort of person that you now are, okay? We just need to keep remembering that that is the case. When we move into a section of the Bible that is intensely practical, and the reason I'm sort of hammering that is because people get it wrong all the time. <laughs> the most misunderstood thing about Christianity is people have interpreted it as being a series of rules or regulations for how to live, right? Wrong. It's all about God's grace producing change. We saw that back in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 to 10. Let me just read that again, just to reinforce what I think is such an essential truth that we probably most of us know and most of us regularly forget, right? Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. Right? It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saved by grace, not by works, Say for doing good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Right? It's a simple point. Uh, we just need to keep being reminded about it. We then go on and we see that this, um, uh, this change-walking lifestyle, it flows actually, what we're, what we're told here in the second half of Ephesians, from a changed mind, interestingly. So if you look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 4, which Michael has just wonderfully put on the screen, okay? I tell you this, insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Now, when it, when it speaks about mind, you saw me going mind, right? As if that's what the Bible's talking about. Sorry about that, that was distracting, right? It's not talking about how you think. It's talking about your whole sort of life conviction orientation of think. It's what makes us tick. That's, that's what's being referred to when it talks about mind. And when it speaks of futile thinking or darkened understanding or ignorance, uh, there it's talking about those who are not yet believers. It's not saying unbelievers are stupid, right? Michael, before he became a Christian, was stupid. Well, actually, he was quite intelligent. He was at university and on a track becoming a university lecturer. Probably not stupid, right? The Bible's not saying stupid at this point. We all know lots of intelligent unbelievers. We also know lots of good living unbelievers, don't we? People who are generous or kind, or who love their families, or who work hard, or who tend their gardens, right? People who are good living people, happy lives, and as you look at them, you probably don't think, you know, futility is the first word that springs to mind. But here's the thing we need to keep remembering. Unbelievers are cut off from God. Right? They are darkened in their understanding in that respect. They do, do just have a three-dimensional view on what life is like in this world. And the life consists of what they can taste, see, touch, feel, achieve. It's not that their lives aren't full. They are full. It's just that ultimately they're not going anywhere. And of course, believers, we live with the fourth dimension in mind. We've already discovered it back earlier in Ephesians. It's the promises that God has given us about the reality of living with him for all eternity. We have that dimension in mind. If you remove God from the picture, life, by definition, is futile. All you can do is focus on, you know, your job, your home, your family, your hobbies, and then you die, you know. Chapter 4, verse 19 speaks of giving, giving themselves over to sensuality, uh, to indulge in impurity and greed. And again, you might think, um, this is a pretty harsh assessment of the lives of some of the people I know who aren't believers, you know, indulging in impurity, greed, giving over to sensuality. But from one point of view, it makes sense, doesn't it? That is, if, if the creation is all you can understand and know, then you'll be caught up in investing in the creation and acquiring it and manipulating it for your own happiness. And isn't that, isn't that exactly what life is like without God? We looked at the creation for our meaning rather than the creator for our identity and purpose, which we then have impact from on the creation. You see, it's all the wrong way around. And if you look at, say, Australia over the last 50 years, you can see the characteristics of that working themselves out so clearly. Um, the last 50 years, all the social commentators say, there's been an incredible rise in individualism, that sense of self-focus and personal identity. Now, the corresponding thing that's happened over that time is a diminishing concern, especially for the vulnerable, the people who don't have a voice for themselves, uh, the aged or the unborn or those with disabilities. 
But for believers, God has given us insight into eternal realities. And that's what drives our hearts and ambitions. We know we were the living dead back in Ephesians chapter 2. But by God's grace, we're made alive forever. So here's the question I want to ask. How do we avoid living like flat earth Christians? People who think this is all there is in practice. How do you avoid that? Well, it involves, as Chris has so helpfully done the kids' talk, putting on a new set of clothes. Michael's going to put up a uh, picture of Sue and I on our wedding day. Right? <laughs> Look at that. There you go. Uh, Sue is beautiful. She still is, of course. And uh, me, on the other hand, there I am in my camel brown three-piece suit with a tan velour tie, bow tie, a very fashionable hairstyle, and what a trendy moustache I have. <laughs> the 1980s fashion has a lot to answer for, um, and probably my judgment in wardrobe. Right? The Ephesians 4, what we have is this picture of um, putting off the old wardrobe and putting on the new threads, the new way of life. And those verses that Chris read out earlier, chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, they capture this, this key idea that then gets worked out in a few different ways. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to focus on uh, three wardrobe changes that I think I just pulled apart for us in these following verses. Okay, the first is the way in which we speak. We're to get rid of verse 25, falsehood, or verse 29, unwholesome talk. Now remember, the big idea here in the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the commitment of God's people to be unified to maintain our family relationships together. And the reality is, falsehood or or lying, it it destroys relationships. Like, I don't need to tell you that. You know, it's true. In our family, when our kids were growing up, if they broke something accidentally, no matter how special it was, even if it was that wonderful, special family heirloom I showed you last week, even if it was that, not a big deal. Not a big deal. If they lied, huge deal in our family. Because pots don't destroy relationships, but lying does. And family relationships are so important. So integrity in the way in which we speak was just such a high value in our family by comparison with stuff. We may have overdone that, actually, as I reflect back, but uh, I still think it was the right sort of priority to have. When it gets to verse 29, it talks about unwholesome talk. Uh, Again, talking about words that harm relationships, but slightly broader. It's a picture of abusive language or or vulgar speech. In our culture, I, I think today, as I reflect on the changes over the decades, people use swear words for punctuation. Instead of saying, ah, 
they swear, you know, like, I get that, and I'm not sure that there's as much content to the swear words now as what there might have been 20 or 30 years ago in terms of intention or meaning. Uh, you know, I remember I acted for a client 40 years ago as a lawyer, and he was arrested for swearing in a public place. Right? And uh, I tried to defend him from these charges, but I, he was convicted. Obviously, I wasn't very good at my job. But, you know, the, but today, he would never have been arrested for swearing in a public place using the words he did. No way. I'm not even sure it's on the penal code anymore. You know, our culture's just shifted in that sort of sense. But why would believers ever use swear words? Four-letter words, or however many letters they have, you know. Like we would, we'd never do that, really, would we? Not in a thoughtful sort of sense. And when would we ever take God's name or the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, when would we ever trivialise that? You just wouldn't, would you? It's easy to slip into that, though. You know, the old wardrobe, the old garb. Now, let me say, it's important we're not a stop it, you know, a spot it and stop it sort of family. It's easy to get into legalism on this sort of stuff. Uh, and I don't think that is helpful. But we still want to be careful. It goes on, verse 31. It talks about slander. And I think here it's the, uh, the, the idea of gossip, you know, um, maligning someone uh, by the way in which you use your words. Uh, it's showing contempt for others by the way in which you speak, subtly putting others down. And, and I think, because we, you know, we're a pretty middle-class sort of group, we're very clever at this, if we're ever going to do it, uh, because we're astute to it. So in my experience, it'll work something like this. Isn't... Bob or Jenny or whatever the person's name is, they're a lovely person, aren't they? And you always know if you're in that sort of conversation what the next word is going to be. It will be, but, yeah, you've experienced it too, obviously, you know, uh, or done it like I have, you know. Well, they're a lovely person, but, you know, isn't that telling? Uh, if you haven't got anything to say that's positive about someone, don't speak. That'd be my advice. Or if there is something you need to say about someone, say it to them because they need to hear it. Right? Don't say it to someone else. We all know that this can be a, uh, a weakness that we can have. And let me say, talking about someone behind their back, that is just so destructive. Uh, whenever I've heard of someone I've upset for some reason, it's often been on the lips of somebody else that this person I've upset has spoken to. And I think, oh, it's just so damaging to our relationship that they've obviously talked to a range of other people before they've come and spoken to me. You know, it's just so unhelpful. Do not collect listening ears when you've been hurt, because that divides the church. It destroys it. We're to put on new clothes, new verbal wardrobe. Verse 25, speak truthfully with your neighbour, because we're all members of one body. We're to maintain unity among, maintain unity among believers, because we're part of this family, and we do it by the way in which we speak. 
Verse 29, we speak to build up according to their needs that it may be helpful to those who listen. Some of you, do many of you know David Wright? David's on the uh, staff of the Bible College of South Australia. Terrific brother. And I worked with him for maybe a decade uh, at Trinity Church. Now, early on in my relationship with David, I used to find myself always wanting to finish off his sentences for him. You know, you'd ask him a question and he'd go to answer and pause and think and think before he answered. And I thought, man, you're so slow. Get it out, get it out, you know. And I thought he was just slow. But he's actually just thoughtful. That's that's not a bad thing, actually, to think before you speak. Uh, And that is... David. The other day, three weeks ago, um, I was preaching in town where David goes to church. He came up to me after church and asked how I was going. Now, we're asking that question a lot, right, of each other. Good question to ask. And I said, oh, you know, I gave him the answer I always give to that short question, a short answer. Going pretty well. And then he said, no, no, I want to know how you're going. So I'm just aware that the COVID time has been a really stretching time and you're trying to care for other people and churches. He said, I'm also aware that there have been, on my account, about three or four key leaders in our church. Two of them have died recently that you've been close to for decades. Two have got cancer or really sick. I know Sue's been in hospital for eight days uh, with pneumonia and uh, that's been a strain. I know you're about to have a grandchild And I know you've got a son in Sydney with his wife and two grandchildren who are in lockdown right now. (laughs) I'm just wondering how you're going. Uh, Yeah, I thought, okay, up until that moment, actually. No, (laughs) not not true. (laughs) But, But wasn't that thoughtful in the way in which he was trying to think about how to use his words to encourage and to build up, and to actually work out how to care for me well? It's a good thing to do. And then afterwards he said, it's interesting that over the last five months during the COVID lockdown, I think your preaching has been really rich as you've taken us. And then he mentioned two series that I'd preached and some of the things that he had found helpful from them. Now, don't feel like you've got to come up to me afterwards. (laughs) Don't thank me for preaching. But uh, do you understand? He actually had really thoughtfully worked out how to encourage and how to build up. Friends, think about how you serve people with your words. Think about how you build them up. I haven't seen someone for a couple of weeks in this sort of post-COVID, we're starting up again. Give them a call. Chase them up. Work out how you can encourage them, right? One wardrobe change. Second wardrobe change I want to talk about is the way we handle our emotions. The way we handle our emotions. Notice verse 26 It says, in your anger, don't sin. Or verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Um, I've got a Christian friend who talks about the great Christian car park miracle, right? The great Christian car park miracle. You'll all have experienced it, right? Uh, You can be home with um, somebody from your family, your children, whatever it is, before coming to church, World War III has erupted, right? Strong words are said. There's tension in the car on the way to the church. And as you park your car, the great 
Christian car park miracle occurs, right? And as you get out of your car, you see another Christian who says to you, how are you going? You say, wonderful, terrific, how are you going? Oh, just superb, you know, like the Christian car park miracle. Can I say, anger is real, right? (laughs) It's actually, that's the point. Anger is real thing. But what we see in verse 26, isn't this so helpful? In your anger, real, don't sin. Anger is real, don't sin. How do you do that? Wouldn't you like to know how to do that? How do you do that? Our culture, I think, justifies anger. Uh, We have a very high tolerance in terms of the reasons for it. We assume that it's healthy to express it, you know, just to dump it. That's the really healthy thing for me, the individual to do. Get off my chest and put it on your head. And there is, there is righteous anger, don't get me wrong. Uh, it just is very hard to stop it festering into sin and taking that next sort of step. Anger so easily morphs into bitterness. Do you find? Just eats away at you like rust in your soul and you find yourself just dwelling on it, you know, constructing mental dolls of the person who has offended you and sticking big pins into that doll in a mental sense as you just rework the thing that has upset you. How do you deal with it in a God-honoring way? Look at verse 26 again. Don't let the sin, sorry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Sure, you will get angry, but you have no right to stay angry. Do you understand what it's saying here? If you stay angry, you let the sun go down on your anger, do you understand that's your problem? not the person who has made you feel angry. It is your issue at that point. You let anger fester, that is the thing that you need to deal with between God and you. Verse 32 provides a, a positive sort of antidote as well. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another as the Lord forgave you. Why would you have to forgive someone? I think they must have done something against you. Maybe even made you angry. Could be. You might say, oh, yeah, I'll forgive as soon as they apologise. They need to repent first, don't they? Can I just state the obvious at this point? God sent Jesus to die for your sin before you repented. Do you get the, the heart of the Heavenly Father at this point? Full of compassion, full of grace, full of generosity towards people who have offended against him. Friends, what I'm saying is each one of us needs to take responsibility for our own anger. No one makes you get angry. People may do things that cause you to feel angry. What you then do with it is a question of how you operate with godliness at that point. Can I make a 
brief word about domestic violence and abuse. Um, can I say there is no place in a Christian marriage or any marriage for domestic violence. If you're in that sort of situation where you're experiencing um, physical violence, you do need to talk to your pastor, Chris or Mark or one of your other leaders in this church, a Bible study leader. Um, it's rare for that issue to be sorted through without it being exposed in some way and hiding it is really helpful to the person who's committing the violence um, and it normally doesn't lead to any sort of helpful resolution. Uh, but there can be an abuse that's not necessarily a physical violence and I think it can be around this whole area of anger. Anger can be used to manipulate or coerce or control. And again, I don't think this is Christian marriage, any marriage really, it's just not the place for that to be a pattern of behaviour to achieve results in a marriage. And if you're feeling like you're always walking on eggshells uh, in your relationship, then you actually need support. And I think this issue of anger is a hidden sin in Australian Christian homes. And I would be stunned if it's not a hidden sin in this congregation that needs to be dealt with, okay? If you're someone who has struggles with anger, you have a problem with anger, friends, if that's you, do not justify your anger. Don't say, you know, that's just my family of origin, that's why we used to work it out, we just yelled at each other and got angry with each other. I don't care what your family of origin was. You need to own your own anger for yourself. Or, you, you know, you don't understand the stress I'm under. I might not understand the stress you're under, but in your anger, don't sin. Okay, take responsibility for your anger. That's what you need to do and deal with it before God. Get help with it. The final wardrobe change, really briefly, is our attitude to stuff. Um, if I was thinking about our culture and the, the weak point for our culture, you know, where we're very futile in our thinking, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, it would be our addiction to toys, to purchased experiences, to uh, travel when we used to be able to do it, um, overvaluing financial security, uh, materialism. Get rid of the old clothes, um, deal with it. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. It, don't you reckon it must have been an interesting church for this to be stated? Okay, you guys, the ones who've been robbing houses, cut it out, right? You know? Well, you sort of think, well, that's a very strong sort of statement. Um, I suspect we haven't got too many professional thieves in our midst, but it's easy to cut corners on truth or integrity at work and in other ways. You've got to be careful with that. But I suspect it's the era of putting on the new wardrobe that's more of the challenge. You see it in verse 28. Are we to work to have something to share with those who are in need. I think the idea here is to clothe yourself with generosity. Uh, now, for me, uh, stealing's not been a big problem for me, you know, for a while now. Um, but clothing myself with generosity, much more of a challenge. Can you, um, can you remember what you did with your first pay packet, for those of you who've actually ever earned one? Um, can you remember what you did with it? 
I came from a family of origin where with your first pay packet, you saved it, right? <laughs> that was the wise, shrewd, helpful thing to do. And I think that, that family of origin, which I fully take responsibility for, don't, don't get me wrong, but uh, it, it has been the challenging thing to deal with. How do I move from that sort of perspective to generosity? And it's come in a two-step process. When I became a Christian, I thought, I should actually give away 10% of what I earn, you know, for the church, for mission, for, Christian, for the needy, like is mentioned here. And so I deliberately set that. But you know what that did was? It gave me the freedom to control the other 90. I felt like if I dealt with this bit, I could then do what I like with the other bit. I'm pretty sure that wasn't generous. It was just sort of assuaging my guilt to the one side. But this has been an area I've wanted to grow in, you know, to get my wardrobe mojo happening a bit, not physically, obviously, but, you know, generally, to actually achieve better. And so what Sue and I have done over the years, and I'm not saying you have to do this, I'm just saying what we have done, is we have tried to work out how we can increase the amount we give away every year and the percentage of the income we give away every year. And just to keep doing that year on year, which we've been doing for about 20-odd years now, okay? So right now, we're close to about 30% of our income that we, we're giving away. And we're at a stage of life where we have no kids living at home or anything like that. You know, I fully recognise there are other issues going on here. Uh, although grandchildren I'm working at are not cheap. Uh, but, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying? Well, I've deliberately tried to work at that. Because I'm not sure I'm ever going to feel carefree with money. But I don't want that to be an excuse why I don't deliberately work at putting on that generosity wardrobe and work hard at trying to do that. Because it, at the end of the day, I want to steward the resources God has given me for his glory. I don't want to live like a brainless Christian who says, oh no, I'm living for the glory of God, but I'm really working hard to secure my place in this world until I go to be with God, you know? How futile is that way of thinking? Right? We don't want to be those sort of people. We want to be people who clothe ourselves with righteousness and honour. What we're going to see today and the coming weeks are the areas where we expect the gospel to be transforming our lives and our communities. It starts with gospel convictions. Uh, we've already seen that. We've spent weeks and weeks looking at those convictions but it's meant to overflow into every area of our lives. Speech, yeah, the area we've just talked about, generosity, but also the way in which we deal with our emotions and particularly the area of anger that we've been looking at today. Friends, let's, let's keep praying that we're a community that doesn't just know the truth of the gospel, talk the talk, but we build strong connections between that and our walking together as a community, integrated. Right? And I'm going to pray we do that. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who's shown such grace to us. You've given us your spirit. You've transformed our lives. And Father, we pray you'll keep doing that. You keep shaping us to be more and more uh, like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, uh, that we'll be people who keep getting 
clothed in that righteousness of life. We particularly pray that as we speak, we'll be careful what words we use, how we work to speak to build each other up. Father, we know that uh, it is so easy for our emotions, anger or even other emotions to uh, morph into sin. Uh, We pray that you'll help us to take responsibility for the way we manage our emotions in our relationships. And Father, we pray you'll help us not to be brainless when it comes to stuff and to artificially substitute security and joy by the way in which we use your creation rather than relate to you as the creator. So Father, graciously go before us. Help us to love, serve and honour you as we live together as your family. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.